Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 10. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham and this is the podcast to inform, debate and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hello, 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 and welcome to Critical Care Practitioner Podcast again. We're on episode number 10, which I'm ever so excited about because it means I'm in double figures. I've made it past the dreaded episode 7 and now I'm into double figures, which is fantastic. I think people are still enjoying them. The last episode I did was on Smack and that's had a lot of downloads. Uh, People seem to enjoy that one in particular. If you've got anything particularly you wanted me to add or you've got any comments to make, then please go to Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. Leave your comments there, you can do it by voicemail or you can contact me directly. I'd love to hear any comments that you might have, but I hope you enjoyed it. I added a bit of music, I wanted to ump it up and I wanted to reflect the energy that comes across on the Smack conferences as well, which is why I I added that music. I know it's not traditional, but um, I'm hoping it didn't detract from what I thought was quite a, a good episode. This episode is going to be uh, an interview with Min Le Kong. For those that don't know him, he's with the Royal Flying Doctor Service and we're going to be talking in particular about cricoid pressure. So that's going to be coming up very shortly. The other bit of news I've got is that my job is about to change. I was interviewed recently for a practitioner post in the Accident Emergency Department at the hospital I work at and was successful in getting the job. So it's kind of a sideways move but with an awful lot to learn as well. I, the reason I did it was for developmental reasons. I feel like my diagnostic skills are lacking and I think this could just be something else, another opportunity to help um, boost my CV a little bit. And long-term development, who knows where it might take me. I'm hoping I'm going to be in A&E for many years to come, helping develop the practitioner roles in A&E alongside some of the excellent practitioners that are already there. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. That possibly isn't going to happen now until October with having to give notice and things, but a very, very exciting opportunity. Anyway, let's get on and listen to the interview with Min. I hope you enjoy it. There's a lot of pearls in there. Go to the show notes. I've left a few links in there as well. Well, it's nice to be able to speak to you anyway, Min. I've seen a lot of your tweets over time. Um, you're obviously sure. a very a- very active tweeter. When do you find time to do all this tweeting? Is it is it when you're up in the air or is it when you're down base waiting to go somewhere? Oh, any time. All the above. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the most enjoyable ones are from the air because we get some pretty good views up there. Yeah, I can imagine. So if you're tweet if you're tweeting from the air, do they can you transmit from from the air or you just wait until you land on that? Yeah, yeah, believe it or not, um, there is mobile reception in in parts and the actual aircraft have actually got um, mobile phone reception and satellite phone connections. Now, the satellite phone is generally, you, know, you, you don't have internet access over the satellite phone connection, but certainly when you have the mobile phone connection, you can you can transmit. So um, 
so yeah no that's quite um, it's quite good it's quite handy because sometimes you you need to look up things on the internet and we can do that and so yeah okay excellent would i ask you then um would you mind just introducing yourself um tell us who you are where you work and uh, then I, I just want to talk briefly about the flying doctor service that you're part of as well because uh, i know a lot of people certainly in the uk have probably heard about the service but um don't actually know that much about it okay uh my name is dr min lekong i'm uh, currently senior medical officer with the royal flying doctor service of queensland in australia uh, the base that I am in charge of is Mount Isa base. Um, I live, however, in Cairns and I, I used to work for the Flying Doctor base in Cairns for the last seven years. Um, but yeah, in the last uh, year, uh, year and a half, I've been um, working at Mount Isa base on a fly-in, fly-out arrangement. About myself, look, um, I've um, been in the Flying Doctor service for about 10 years now. Um, and before that, I was a rural doctor. My primary fellowship training was in uh, rural general practice in South Australia and um, my, my interests really have been um, consistent throughout my career. They've been clinical education, so I've been a clinical educator both for two colleges here in Australia. One is the Royal Australian College of General Practice, the Rural Faculty, and currently with the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine as one of their uh, supervisors and examiners. Um, also, uh, my other clinical interest is in uh, pre-hospital retrieval medicine. Obviously, I run a blog, prehospitalmed.com, and um, and in the last three years, yeah, social media and how we can uh, provide medical education um, and and um, kind of keeping up to date professional development through social media. So that's been another active interest. Clinical interests include ketamine uh, sedation which I've published one paper on, and I'm actually working on two papers right now, uh, in the pre-hospital setting, in particular for management of the acutely agitated patient, and also pre-hospital, well, essentially emergency airway management is another clinical interest of mine. I've got one paper out on that already, looking at another one. So um, that's, uh, in a nutshell, me. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Um, as far as your flying doctor service goes, you say, um, do, do you fly as well? Are you, are you pilot trained or are you just purely there as the medic? No, good question. There's often a bit of a uh, misconception that the flying doctor also actually flies a plane. Having said that, we, we do have had people, my colleagues, people from the past and present who do actually fly as well. Um, but yeah, the majority of um, flying doctors only do the doctoring part. I actually, to be honest, I've never been actually interested in flying the plane. I've certainly been shown um, in an emergency how to do that and uh, mm. and so forth. And are these are these prop driven planes that you fly? Are they jets? I mean, what's your, what's your kind of average flying time? Would you say transfer from patient to hospital? Uh, the service that I'm in in Queensland uses American Beechcraft Super King Air twin turboprops. Mm -hmm. um, we also used to have Pilatus PC-12s. We, we actually still have a couple of them that they're being phased out. Other sections throughout Australia do just exclusively use the Swiss-made Pilatus PC-12, which is a single turboprop um, fixed wing. But yeah, we have the twin air, um, sorry, the twin-engined um, King Air. And our mm -hmm. average difference is say the Mount, the Mount Isa region services an area roughly the size of the United Kingdom. Um, mm -hmm. And so that so imagine, you know, it's kind of the, the kind of the circumference of that would be about, oh, I don't know, five, six hundred kilometres um, yeah. in, um, in, in terms of radius. Um, but the whole state of Queensland um, is uh, 
it's a good you know 12 1300 kilometers i guess from from uh, uh, one base to another and our flying times on average um two yeah two three hours um, oh, one, okay. one hours would be a relatively short one um so so yeah big difference big distances uh remote work and um yeah so that's the kind of work do you, um, presumably you're flying as the doctor, I presume you're having some kind of um, support with your paramedic or, or nursing support as well, or, or are you purely on your own and just that, that's how you work? Um, we work with a flight nurse who is a registered nurse who has got um, training or certainly experience in emergency medicine, intensive care and midwifery. So, um, so that's who we fly with. A, so it's a two-person uh, retrieval uh, team. Um, paramedics um, are, are not part of um, the current staffing. Uh, in other aeromedical services within the state, such as CareFlight Queensland, um, they do a doctor-paramedic model, and there are certainly um, um, there's certainly uh, helicopter services along the coast who are just crewed by intensive care paramedics from the Queensland mm -hmm. Ambulance Service. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm just asking these questions because I actually work for a company that's based in Oxford that flies around Europe repatriating patients around from from various European. We, t we, we tend to go to the Canary Islands an awful lot. Tenerife is an island that I visit very frequently. Oh, um, right. but it's, okay. it's just interesting to see uh, your take on it. And we fly um, a, a Learjet 35 and the, yep. I can't remember the name of the other, an old prop-driven one. So we've got similar flight times as well. The, the reason um, I just just to let anyone, the listeners know why, why we're talking to each other. The reason I contacted Min was basically I saw on Twitter there was a discussion started uh, regarding cricoid pressure. Now, in my um, job as a critical care practitioner, cricoid pressure is something that we come across quite frequently. Um, using it now um, still in when we RSI. I've got a number of issues with cricoid pressure, but can you, from your point of view, just what's your understanding of the definition of cricoid pressure and, and Selick's um, original proposal? Yeah, well, look, uh, I think thanks for bringing up the topic. Um, it's it's a bit controversial, and certainly on social media, Twitter, there's been quite a lot of, uh, I guess at times, pretty heated debate about um, the role of it. So cricoid pressure is... Um, a manual technique that is applied to uh, essentially reduce the risk of regurgitation and therefore reduce the risk of aspiration during uh, a intubation, an emergency intubation. And um, it was described initially by Dr. Selleck, who was, was from, um, who's from England, and um, basically he had a very small case series of patients that he had applied this technique that he thought was was some. Um, going to be helpful. It was actually originally described several decades before in the 19th century um, and, and he kind of uh, kind of found the technique and then tried it in his own practice. But essentially it's um, digital pressure over the cricoid cartilage directly posterior and um, there's been a number of different descriptions of it but probably the, um, uh, the, the current accepted um, standard is to apply it with a three kilogram or 30 newton force. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of, I guess the more academic people would say it's actually not pressure, it's actually a force because it has a direction. So it's a three kilo force directed directly posterior onto the cricoid cartilage. 
and um, and that's done when the patient is essentially asleep or induced. Before that, they say that you should apply a one kilo or a ten newton force before the patient is fully asleep, and and this right. is, this this is to try to reduce the chance. <coughs> we know that if you apply cricoid pressure too early or too forcefully in someone who's still got some reflexes of their airway, they can make them vomit, it can make them retch, it can make them gag, and that's obviously not good. There used to be this teaching that you should maintain cricoid pressure even if the patient's trying to vomit, but that has now been um, removed from the standard teaching because there were a couple of cases of esophageal rupture as a result of someone continuing to maintain cricoid pressure. So let me be clear, this is a manoeuvre that can um, increase risk to the patient and therefore it needs to be done intelligently, appropriately and trained to do it. Yep. I, I kind of, that's, that's kind of one of the contradictions that I, I think comes along with cricoid pressure and, and maybe you need to, you might be able to clarify my understanding of this, but if you're putting on cricoid pressure to reduce the risk of aspiration, but then you immediately release the cricoid pressure once the patient does actually vomit and therefore is at risk of aspiration, does that not seem a bit of a contradiction to you or I'm just misunderstanding it? No, look, it's a fair question. Um, basically, it is a slight misunderstanding. So basically, what cricoid pressure is supposed to do is to prevent this passive movement of stomach contents up, up the esophagus into your upper airway. So it's, it's but, but if someone is actually actively, um, you know, kind of vomiting in terms of using active stomach muscles, to actually force um, stomach contents up the esophagus, then the risk-benefit would decide that it's probably too much risk to keep cricoid pressure against that active contraction. If it's just simple passive regurgitation, then um, that's where its main benefit is. And there's been a, a lot of kind of argument and research to say whether it does that or not, whether it lowers esophageal sphincter's pressure or whether it increases it and so forth. The, later, the latest data is actually, I think, probably more convincing that it does do what it's supposed to do if it's done correctly. There was a 2014 paper put out in anaesthesia and analgesia, and I can put a, give you a reference link, and it was essentially an, an anaesthesia study where they used GlideScope, video laryngoscope GlideScope, in an anaesthetic setting in the operating theatre to look at the larynx and the esophageal opening during anaesthesia, during intubation, sorry, and with 30 newtons of cricoid pressure, of cricoid force applied. And, and what they did is that they wanted to see whether it actually distorted the laryngeal view. Uh, that was one um, measure. And also they wanted to see whether during this cricoid application, whether they could actually pass a nasogast an orogastric tube into the esophagus to actually try to actually physically pass it down into the stomach. And in, in, all, the, in all the applications of cricoid pressure done uh, at 30 newtons, they were unable to pass the nasogastric tube into the esophagus. They actually could physically feel it was being prevented from being passed. Right. So, so and, and then, and at the same time, one of the other criticisms of cricoid pressure is that it obscures your view, it kind of messes up your view, which is true, it does. Um, but um, it, 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 how often it does that is a little bit uh, debatable. Uh, and and is, is, there, is there proof that what's actually occluding your view is correctly or incorrectly applied cricoid pressure? Because that's my big debate, that's my big problem with cricoid pressure. And, and I think this is the big issue, is that it, um, this was a practice that was adopted widespread, universally, with almost no standardised training. It was essentially, you know, 
Dr. Skellig described it and it was kind of then passed on. Then Peter, uh, Peter stepped and Safer in their RSI paper that first described rapid sequence intubation induction, they recommended doing it. And then from those two papers, it's been, you know, basically widely introduced with no standardized training. No, in none of those papers does it actually describe really how much you need to apply the force. Dr. Selleck's paper essentially says, you know, you apply it with, with a, a, a kind of enough pressure uh, as if you were um, uh, pushing on the bridge over your nose until it's uncomfortable, essentially, which isn't a very good description of how much force you need to apply. And it wasn't until later work was done that actually the amount of pressure that was needed to one, balance the closure of the esophagus versus the ability to steal bag valve mask, um, that, uh, that pressure was adequately described. So uh, I think this is the issue is that <coughs> a lot of people say it's all, it's all bad because you know, it obscures your view, it obstructs the airway and stuff like that. Well, you need to accept that that was because it hasn't been taught well and the standard of training is not good. And therefore, when it's done appropriately, and then certainly that latest study where it was, there was um, um, no no episodes where they couldn't intubate. The uh, the intubating view was adequate in, in all cases. And like I said, the um, nasogastric tube couldn't be passed or the orogastric didn't pass the esophagus. So there is this um, indirect evidence that one, it should occlude the esophagus and that two, it shouldn't um, affect your view. And having said that, my, my general feeling is that I don't see why we can't have both things, is that we can apply, we can train cricoid pressure appropriately, we can apply it, and if there is problems, we can remove it. Now, a, mm -hmm. a lot of people get a bit uncomfortable with that statement. They think, well, What's the point in doing it if you're going to remove it anyway? I think, um, well, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure if I accept uh, that that is such a big deal. But um, what are your thoughts? So I'm, ass I'm assuming that um, your current practice then um, is is based upon that theory that cricoid is something you use if the circumstances are right, but you're very um, very open to the um, the other person removing that cricoid pressure. Is it removing the cricoid pressure or easing off slightly? Because I've been in situations where the intubator or and indeed myself have just asked for the cricoid pressure to be eased back a little bit. And I do wonder about that as well. Is there any point? Is it is it all or nothing or are there grades that you think might be effective as well? Or is that not something that we, we've looked into particularly? I, I think it's something that hasn't been looked in in the literature. And I think in clinical practice, um, I think it's a little bit confusing to ask your assistant to say ease off. I mean, I think the, 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 the intriguing thing here is that with video laryngoscopy, there, there is this opportunity in the future or right now to actually train cricoid pressure as a team procedure that it can be done so that the, um, the uh, person applying the cricoid force sees what how it affects the airway view and sees how it affects the intubation uh, performance. And, and so, so I, I think, you know, rather than throwing, you know, the baby out with the bathwater, I think there is a good opportunity, the conditions are right, the technology is right, that cricoid pressure, I mean, because essentially before, cricoid pressure was a blind procedure. It was applied, the person applying it had absolutely no idea what it did to the airway and, and it was all, you know, very kind of, um, empirical what was done. Now we have the opportunity to actually see what is being done. And there actually has been a study, actually several studies using video laryngoscopes to see what the effect of cricoid force is. And in clinical practice, remarkably, 
whether you call it cricoid pressure or just pushing the larynx posterior, whatever you want to call it, but it's quite clear that that manoeuvre in itself can actually assist the passage of the tube. With indirect laryngoscopes like the Glidescope or the, um, you know, the, the Pentax or something like that, um, they will give you a view that is a, that, that generally is a little bit more posterior than, than what you would see with direct, direct vision. And so therefore mm -hmm. what happens is that as you're passing the tube, it tends to go more posteriorly. It tends to head towards the esophagus. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you can do that I've found is that you, you actually just getting your assistant to put um, or put on cricoid pressure if it's not being done or actually put push more, uh, do more cricoid force, that can actually allow the larynx to move down posteriorly. Is, and then is, that, the tube is, that, all, is that almost um, uh, burp, if you like, that we're doing there instead? I don't particularly like BERT in terms of a teaching tool and also a clinical manoeuvre. I think it's we're often, you know, I think it's it's a bit like cricoid pressure in a way in that it, there's no standard way that it's taught. It could mean several things to different people. And, and I think when you say, give me some BERT, I remember I was assisting a colleague with an intubation and, you know, I was some, you know, I was, you know, kind of just uh, assisting him and, he was doing his laryngoscopy and he says, oh, oh, just give me some burp. And then I was trying to, you know, I was doing it. It's difficult to know because it's backwards, upwards, rightwards pressure. And essentially when yeah. you're teaching that, is that to your right or is that to the patient's right? Is it to, yeah. you know, the intubator's right? And so it, it's true. There have been papers that try to describe what burp is, but I think like cricoid pressure, it suffers from the same issues in terms of a non-standard way of training. So you just call it simply like, you know, let's just, let's push the larynx backwards or push the larynx towards the spine or something like that. Call it simple like that because backwards, backwards could, I mean, yeah, I guess it means backwards to what? Backwards to the patient, backwards to you mm. as the operator. So, but, but I certainly have found that pushing the larynx posteriorly with a video laryngoscope can help pass the tube. So I think that um, what, I, what I do is um, apply it on a standard. I show my assistant how to do it. We practice um, uh, how to do it. And um, if there's a poor view, I generally ask them to take it off. Uh, remarkably, that, that doesn't happen that often. And then I guess I guess people will vary on their experience of that. But yeah, generally, if I have a poor view, then I'd say take it off. About half of the time, that will improve the view. The other half it will do absolutely nothing. And that's just, that's just the nature of things. Um, and, you know, the, the anesthesia guys, they basically say, um, you know, put it on, take it off if you need to. Always have a sucker ready, and um, and 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 that's that's my general feeling. I, I used to think we should get rid of it, but I, I think um, reviewing, um, discussing things with the anaesthesia folks, um, certainly that have taught me um, and that I work with, um, I, I think it's it's still really currently um, the standard of care. Yeah. What has um, I noticed um, on Twitter that you ran a mini survey, um, I think is how you phrased it, of uh, current practice. And I think one criticism of the mini survey by somebody was that it was very Australian based. But what, what was the outcome of that? Were, were most people still using cricoid? Yeah, basically, if you look, if you combine the, the, the people who voted, yes, absolutely still using it versus uh, and also using it sometimes, then that group was about 40%. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Overall, there was a still about 60% um, who responded who said that they don't use it at all. But I think it, it to me, I mean, I did it, is a completely anonymous, so I don't think there was any bias. And whether you say there was too many Australians or not, well, you know, what can I say to that? It was, it's, a, it's an internet-based survey, so it's not like excluded by, you know, international filters or something like that. So, um, But... Um, I think that what it, it, it showed to me, well, what I hope it demonstrated was that it's, it's it, you know, that there is division of opinion here, that, mm-hmm. that 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 just because you hear it on Twitter and social media, that you know, crocodile pressure is dead and so forth, doesn't mean that everyone agrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I think I think for UK practitioners, it's it's a bit of a challenge. I think. Of all the countries that I've reviewed in terms of looking at guidelines and talking to anaesthesia people and so forth, uh, the UK, which is actually where cricoid pressure was first described, um, remains the one that has, I guess, the most uh, voice in terms of saying that this should be a standard care for emergency intubation. And sadly, there there are a number of litigation cases that are out against um, anaesthetists who uh, were shown not to use the technique and an adverse event happened and and the late well the, the most recent one was 2010 mm. so I, I think that that's a challenge now I, I think we should have a more balanced view on that um i know some of my colleagues in social media and so forth are looking at trying to put out a consensus paper or statement to try to address uh, i guess uh, that dogmatic view but i i would say if i was working in the uk I would still, I'd feel, you know, I would feel definitely more comfortable doing what I'm doing now. Mm. Here in Australia, I think, you know, you, you decide one way or another. I think in the UK, it's challenging. Mm. Are there any um, systematic reviews out there that you're aware of? Because I, I couldn't find any. I just found individual papers. There was a good Canadian um, review. I can send that to you. Um, it was basically a meta-analysis of all the papers done looking at um, cricoid pressure, um, RSI, and whether any of those two things reduce the risk of aspiration. Mm. But, but essentially, I'll be completely honest, the evidence base is not conclusive either way. Cricoid pressure, you know, that there's no uh, convincing patient-orientated outcome data um, mm-hmm. at the moment. Having said that, there are two randomised trials underway, one in France, one in here in New South Wales in Australia. Um, the New mm-hmm. South Wales one will actually be finished next year. Um, okay. And that's an ED-based study looking at randomization of cricoid pressure. The French study, And the yeah. French study is, is actually started recruiting this year and it's looking, it's gonna go out to about 2018, I think. And mm-hmm. that's, a, that's, a big, that's a big study, that's a nationwide study. Um, and, do you, and do that, you know what that's called? Uh, I can send you the link. I, I can't remember the name. Chris Nixon actually yeah. tweeted about it, but um, he, I, okay. I was impressed because I actually wasn't aware of it till Chris tweeted about it. And basically, but that was that looked quite big because it was an obstetric anaesthesia study, which was going to be able to recruit a lot of patients, um, and it was multi-centred. So that will give us big numbers in a, mm. in a high-risk population uh, obstetrics. Mm. So that will give us an idea, um, or hopefully give us an answer. So you know, I mean, I think whilst we're waiting for answers, you guys got to you know carry on. You got to decide what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, so that kind of answers another couple of questions I was going to ask you about future practice and upcoming studies. I just uh, wanted to remark very quickly on one of the pictures that you t you tweeted, and I might retweet it today. And that's uh, I don't know if it was your picture originally, the um, um, the killing kittens picture, which I've always always amuses me when I see it. <laughs> yeah, that, that was. Uh... That was uh, that was put out by a Texan emergency physician who tweets as, as, uh, as EM Basic. His name is Steve Carroll. I actually met Steve at the yeah. first snack. He's a really nice guy. But yeah, I listen to his podcast. I love his podcast. He's got a very laconic, dry, laid back kind of voice, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah, yeah I can imagine he, him doing that. Typical Texan. So um, yeah, that's from him. And you know, that's fine. People, you know, people can have a laugh about things. <laughs> The other thing briefly as well, the NAP4 recommendations um, mm. that you put on your site, mm. um, I think some, somebody remarked in the comments underneath that um, it's interesting that NAP4 seems to recommend RSI but avoids actually directly recommending cricoid. I think I think the implication, though, from NAP4 is that RSI implies that cricoid is being used. I think that's my understanding of that, isn't it? So I think indirectly they are actually recommending cricoid still to be used. Um, and they certainly make that clear in their in their answer, don't they? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, it was a very diplomatic answer. I think, I mean, I, I asked uh, the authors, sorry, the editors, to look at um, some of the social media discussion and content and comments, and they obviously realised that it was this was you know potentially you know could be get quite heated. So they remained very neutral in terms of, I guess. Um, the answer they gave, but but it was pretty clear if you read between the lines that they still think that yes, RSI is the standard of care in the UK. If you think a patient is at risk of aspiration, and yeah. and and by, and by implication, that cricoid pressure for now is still a part of RSI. They admit that the evidence is poor. They admit that there are times when cricoid pressure may make the airway difficult, and they certainly recommend that cricoid pressure should be. Uh, removed or released if there is difficulty in the airway. But but, but see, this is, this is the other intriguing thing about, you know, the UK literature is that there was a, a very sad case in the Scottish Coroner's Court back in 2009, I think, um, of a Mr Gordon Ewing. And this is all a matter of public record, so there's, there's no, no issue of uh, confidentiality because it's on the coroner's website clearly but um, mm -hmm. but basically there um, the man was electively intubated or well, electively uh, anaesthetized for a finger fracture RSI was chosen as the technique because he was a large man and they thought he was at risk of aspiration and and obviously well they, they, they couldn't they failed to manage his airway and he unfortunately died uh, one of the criticisms raised actually during the coronial inquiry was that Cricoid pressure was used and maintained during the initial intubation attempts, and one of the anaesthetists actually did criticise that. It was a UK anaesthetist did criticise, you know, that, that in his opinion this should have been released. And the main anaesthetist who was involved in the case kind of defended her actions by saying that, as per the Difficult Airway Society of the UK guidelines, that that rec recommends that cricoid pressure is maintained during a failed airway procedure or drill. And the coroner essentially, um, I guess, uh, I don't know if rules the right word, but certainly determined that that was not an unreasonable stance and that um, there was no clear, you know, indication to remove cricoid pressure and so forth. So I, I think in that milieu of all this kind of, you know, what, what we see practically we can do, uh, whether cricoid pressure is useful in your practice, whether you should remove it or not, 
there are these cases that are there that are published, um, and certainly when big uh, big name publications like NAP4, Difficult Airway Society Guidelines UK, when when they actually specifically state what should be standard, I think UK practitioners, it's challenging. So uh, I think um, hopefully things will change. Hopefully the evidence will, will will give us a good answer. But until then, I think you need to be careful. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the message from what you're saying and from what I'm reading is that you just carry on with cricoid, release it when you think it appropriate or the, the right thing to do. And, you know, we'll take it from there. It may be one of these things that, that disappears in the future. I suspect from what I've read and from what you've said that possibly not in the near future. Um, I don't think um, the death knell is ringing for it yet. A little, you know, unlike things like, um, I don't know, neck braces, for example, which seems to be... Uh, heading towards um, uh, the terminal phase. Um, just I'm really grateful, Min. That's been really useful. It just helps clarify some of my thinking and hopefully some of the other people out there. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed interviewing him. He's a nice chap to speak to. Lots of interesting things to say. Just to let you know that I am still keen to interview other practitioners. Um, if they're out there, I'm hoping they're listening. I have had a conversation recently with a lady called Caro Boulanger, who is leading the National Association of Critical Care Practitioners, which is aligned with the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine. They have just had their conference, uh, as I record this, it was yesterday, up in Edinburgh. I wasn't able to go, unfortunately, but I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to interview Carol, find out some of the things that happened up there and some of the plans for the future. Uh, I think Carol's quite keen to uh, let people know what progress she's making with the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine as well. So hopefully we can have a chat about that and I can release that as a podcast fairly soon. I have managed to interview a Dr. John Cress, who's a doctor in Chicago, about a piece of research he did recently regarding um, weakness, uh, ITU-induced critical care weakness. Um, So that's going to be one that's going to be released soon as well. I'm also hoping to speak very soon with a Dr. Louise Rose, who's an associate professor over in the University of Toronto. um, And she has just um, released a bit of research as well on uh, psychological well-being, um, health-related quality of life and memories of intensive care, uh, which was published in the Intensive and Critical Care Nursing. So hopefully I'm going to be speaking to her soon as well. Uh, And then finally, uh, I've got an interview lined up with uh, a gentleman called Lee Cutler, who has published a bit of research about decontamination um, and how that's reduced ventilator-associated pneumonias. So lots of things coming up. I also wanted to tell you briefly about the course we're doing in Walsall. The dates are the 23rd to the 25th of September. If there's any practitioners out there that want to um, start or brush up on their clinical history taking and examination skills that's one we're offering in Walsall you can find that on criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk if you go there and click on the links or HEST training as well which is hesttraining.com that's H-E-S training.com there's some details there as well it's going to be a good course I'm really looking forward to that the only other thing I wanted to tell you about uh, and this is a bit of a begging bowl moment but I do try and finance this um, endeavour I'm doing with the um, podcast and the website and there are some costs involved. So I've just released some MP3 files for helping people who are sitting clinical examination OSCEs. 
um, and it, it's me taking you through what would be expected in an OSCE station um, for the various clinical examinations, so neuro, cardiovascular, respiratory, um, etc. So it might be helpful for revision purposes to perhaps have on your smartphone or your iPod um, for you to listen to again and again and get used to the almost the script that we have to go through. So you can go to criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk and you can find those on the clinical examination pages. Um, there is a charge for them, but like I say, this is hopefully something that might help me finance what I'm doing here and perhaps go to the odd conference as well and uh, help provide you with a bit more information. The other thing is the Patreon link that I've got on my website. Here you can sponsor an episode. You can go to as little as $1. Um, and even if nobody does come and uh, offer me a little bit of money, I'm going to carry on doing these because I am enjoying them. It's a fantastic way of networking. Anyway, enough from me. I hope you've enjoyed this one. There's many more to come. Take care. Bye-bye.